Oh, the trip to New York. Yeah, that my first New Year's I spent with Aunt Harriet. Then about a couple of months after that, one of the girls was transferred and her best friend, this girl was transferred her name was Andrea. Everybody called her Andy, and we re everybody liked her, and we were so sorry for her because she got transferred to Ottawa, and nobody wanted to go to Ottawa. It was full of women. There were no men there. <laughs> Halifax was so much fun, and um, when you weren't working, and um, her friend, Hoagie, came in one night about seven o'clock or something, and said to me. Martin, what are you doing tonight? And I said, I don't know. I haven't thought about it yet. And she said, come on to the dance with me. So I went, and we, she and I, always went to the dances together, and she was really good. I mean, she was good, and it got to be kind of a joke when we had dance on the station that everybody knew that either Martin came first and Holden came second, or it would be the other way around, you know? It was really quite fun, but she was uh, very adventurous. She was from Camsack, Saskatchewan, and her brother was in the Navy, and he would come into port every once in a while, and we'd, you know, go out for coffee with him. And um, she taught me how to use pancake makeup and how to put on mascara, and um, this is a girl from Camsack. <laughs> anyway, uh, and she kept her uniforms, like, really... And so did I. Anyway, she said to me one day, out of a clear blue sky, and I just could not believe it. She said, you don't go home for Christmas because it's too far, and you know, so we have New Year's, right? And I said, yes. She was in the wireless department. And as Dad doesn't remember her, but I think she came to replace Dad. I always have believed that. She doesn't remember who, or doesn't know who she replaced, but you know, half a dozen women came in, half a dozen men went out, and it was about the same time. So, uh, anyway, her shifts were different, I wouldn't mind. So, we had a kind of a conflict that way, but most times we could manage to be together. She said, How would, Why don't we go to New York? I said, What? You know, New York? And she said, I've always dreamt of being in Times Square on New Year's Eve. And I thought, that's so outrageous. Where are we going to get the money? And she said, well, aren't you buying a war bond? And I said, yeah, it's the only way you can, I can save money to go home, you know, and leave. And she said, don't cash it in to go home and leave. You know, she said, you won't need money at home on leave. And, of course, the Air Force paid your way home and back. Uh, she said, we'll cash it in just before we go to New York and we'll go on the train. So we went to find out to the train station to find out how much it would cost, and it was really cheap. And we would have to go from Halifax to Moncton, change trains, and then you went from Moncton down through New York, no, down through Maine to Boston, and then we would have the afternoon in Boston, and then get the train from Boston to New York, and that's hardly any distance at all. I was pretty nervous about it, and she thought it was a real joke. You know, this was just going to be so much fun. 
So this is what we did. We got on the train and we went to Moncton. And they would come through and you got these long tickets with stubs on. And we got to Moncton and then the next, then we changed that from that train Moncton to Boston. And when he came through to get my ticket stub, or how did this happen? I guess he came through and he picked up our first ticket stub. And then just as we were getting into Moncton and we were going to get off the train, you know, you're checking through your purse and everything. I don't have my tickets. I don't have a ticket to get from Moncton to New Boston to New York or even back to Halifax. It's gone. The whole thing is gone. And I thought, he must have not given me back the, the stubs, like it would be four, like theater tickets about that size. So I got off, we had, you know, to get off at Boston anyway. And I went into the train station and he was there counting his tickets. And I said, you know, I don't think you gave me back my ticket. He said, I would never do that. I've been on the railway for so long and they have gruff, you know. And I said, but I haven't got it anywhere. It's not in any pockets. It's not in my purse. And I said, we were all busy talking at our seat. There were about six of us sitting around when he came to get the tickets. So I said, I, would you mind if I help you go through those tickets and see if mine are in there by any chance? And he had dumped them into his hat. Like he had someplace on the train, I guess he kept tickets. And the train was jammed, you know. And my tickets were there. I couldn't believe it. He apologized. And I said, well, I should have been paying attention. But, oh, I was so upset. I tell you, what was I going to do? Anyway, we got on the train to go to Boston. And imagine, I'm in the United States. I'd never been to the States. It was really quite something. We got to Boston and... Uh, went to see the Boston Gardens, where the Boston Bruins played. And it was a really shabby old green wooden building. I was really disappointed in that. We stopped to get our shoes shined because we were so embarrassed. All the American service women were wearing pumps with heels and their uniforms were beautiful. I mean, they really had lovely material and they really looked good, and here we were, you know, not looking that great. Um, our uniforms were nice, but they weren't classy. And we had, like, men's Oxfords, but with a little bit higher heel. We stopped to get our shoes shined by two little shoe shine guys on the street, and they teased us. They said, boy, you guys really do wear army boots, don't you? But anyway, it was cheap. It was a nickel or something. And anyway, our shoes at least were shiny. And we went into a canteen. Saw, you know, a USO canteen. And we had to kill the afternoon. We went into this USO canteen. And there was a great big jukebox there. And it was free. You could play anything you wanted on one of these old jukeboxes. We came out of there with, I don't know how many packages of Lucky Strike cigarettes. Because 
everybody we talked to and we told them, you know, we were from Canada, we were going to New York and wow, isn't that great, you know, and how are you off for cigarettes and things, you know? Because the Navy always knew that their cigarettes were cheap. And actually, I don't think that the American Navy paid anything for their smokes. So we had, I, I don't know how many packages of cigarettes and stuff. And they bought us coffee and donuts and so on. Anyway, we went down to the Boston train station to get on. And, you know, train stations during the war were just a madhouse. I mean, everybody was always going somewhere and they were jammed and uh, uh, pushing and shoving. And it was like going to a sale. Well, we got to the Boston train station and it was packed. And it was the train to New York. And there's a conductor standing outside this metal gate and he's saying that the train for New York will be leaving in five minutes, the gate is opening now. And so people start pushing it and he says, but, and of course there's lots of service policemen around, Navy, Air Force, Army, service people on this side and civilians on that side. So all the service people went over on this side. Then he said, service women first and service men next. And then foreign service women first. And we got this most beautiful seat on the train. I mean, I think we were one of the first ones on the train. I don't remember that there were any other Canadian girls. And we were just, by that time, I'd made leading air women, woman, which meant that I got to wear a little propeller about sewn on my arm, which showed that I was a leading air woman. There was no way you could make an American believe that that was a leading air woman. They didn't have anything like that. We were pilots. <laughs> and we must be English pilots, because they knew Canadian pilots wore them on their chests. But <laughs> so anyway, we got on, and we had made reservations at this air women's club. And it was just off Times Square. And so on the train, we were treated beautifully. I mean, first into the dining car and all that stuff. And we got into New York and it was late, late, about 11 o'clock at night. And we had been talking to four American sailors. And, uh, you know, they were neat young kids and having a ball, you know, gas in a way, about music and dancing and stuff like that. And uh, one of them said, well, look, we're going right past your place where you're staying, so why don't we all grab a cab? And the cabs would take as many people as could climb in them in those days because gasoline was so short. So they drove us to this place. This cabbie said, are you sure this place is still open? And I said, well, I have a letter here, and it's only written early in December that they're expecting us on December the 28th or something. Two people with our names. We got there and the thing had closed that day and we had no place to stay. And one of the fellow, one of the sailors in the cab said, we'll all get out here and we'll find a payphone. I'll phone my sister. She lives on Long Island. It was the first time I'd ever heard Long Island that way she lives on Long Island and she'll find a place for you to stay 
So that's where he was going. So we went, I don't remember, on the street, I think, a pay phone, and he phoned her, and she said, phone me back in half an hour or an hour or something, and we went into a, a bar, a bar near Times Square. I couldn't believe that I was actually in New York City at a bar in Times Square <laughs> having a drink. You know. <clears throat> anyway, he phoned his sister back, and she had an address for us, and it was a nurse's residence uh, on Fifth Avenue, close to Central Park. She said, they're expecting you. And we went. They were expecting us, and they gave us a lovely room. And it was a nurse's residence, but these nurses had gone home for holidays. And we were welcome to have their room. I guess they'd had to check with these women. And we had our own bathroom. It was wonderful. And not only that, I don't think we paid, which was even better. Anyway, then the next night was not New Year's Eve. The next night was the 30th. And uh, we did a lot of things. We went in and out of stores, went into Macy's and all the places we'd ever heard of. And it was just like a dream. We didn't pay for a thing. Any place we went, if there was a civilian around, they would come up and pick your meal check up. We went into the cafeteria. You know, you've heard of those cafeterias or um, automats. I'd always wanted to go into one of those automats, and they're really neat. And we went in there and we got, you know, a sandwich and a piece of pie and a cup of coffee and and um, when we went to the first, they're all in little slotted things, and you put your money in first. And this man came over right behind us when he saw us going over, and he said, you're not putting any money in there. Just point at what you want, and I'll put it in. And then he went and walked away and said, have a nice New Year's, and that was it. But civilians were so good to service people. It was unbelievable, and we wanted to get into the canteen, the big main canteen, but the lineup was right around the block and we would never have got in. And uh, we couldn't get into Radio City Music Hall either. The lineup there was right around the block. And then New Year's Eve came and this was the big thing. And all New Year's Day on Times Square, they're boarding up the buildings. They're you know, like a hurricane is coming, but they're putting plywood on all the windows, and they're um, all, everything is getting double locked, and people are well because they riot. You know, they're everybody's drunk, midnight on Times Square and New Year's Eve. It's uh, it you can't move. It's unbelievable. I mean, you're just crowded in like you can't move your arms or anything, and. You can't go on the roads. You have to be on the sidewalks. And the roads are policed by policemen on horseback. So they can really hold you back. You know, you mean, nobody's going to go do anything with a cop on horseback after you, especially one with a gun and a bat on and everything. And so we were there when New Year's Eve struck and the thing came down. And it was pretty exciting, you know. And then we started this long conga line, and um, the Times paper took a picture 
of us leading a Congo line. We went up to their office the next day, but they weren't very cooperative. They were busy and they didn't have time to look for the picture, but we always wanted, wondered if it ever showed up or what happened to it. Or Every bar in New York had a sign on it that would say um, how many, well, I guess they do here too, like uh, the limit of people in the bar at any given time is so many people. And if there'd be a lineup outside waiting for two people to leave so you could go in. We never waited. <laughs> they would always let us in. I couldn't get over it when we got back to Canada how lucky, how fortunate American service people are because the civilians just worship people in uniform, you know? Anyway, um, we did go out, the, I, and I've forgotten which night it was, with these four sailors and they wanted to take us to um, two places. One was a bar at the entrance to um, Central Park, and he knew the bartender. The bartender was a friend of his dad's, and he wanted to take us in there because that bartender was great about showing bar tricks. And we went and sat in there, and, and it was uh, in the theater district. There were some, It was off-Broadway theater district, and... Uh, when intermission time came, the place would, was loaded, and then everybody disappeared, went back into the theater. <laughs> In between times, the bartender wasn't very busy, and so he showed us a lot of tricks, you know, about blowing a straw across the bar. And I mean, we were so green, we didn't know any of these tricks, and he was having a wonderful time showing us bar tricks and stuff. And then um, we decided we'd go to a club, and the bartender, suggested that we go to the Zanzibar because he knew the doorman at the Zanzibar. And if we went to the doorman, he said, I'll give you a note. And he gave us a note and we went to the Zanzibar and we went into the Zanzibar and Louis Armstrong was playing in the Zanzibar. Could not believe it. I could not believe it. I, well, we walked in. It had a lineup outside too, but we got in and it was downstairs because I remember walking down these stairs and all the walls and the carpeting were um, zebra striped. Maybe that's where I get my zebra thing from, I don't know. Anyway, um, we got a nice table, a table for six, and I guess everybody wanted to know who we were, you know. They asked, they didn't mind asking the boys we were with, like, who, who are the girls? Oh, they're air women. Oh, from England? No, they're from Canada. No. <laughs> they may have Canada on their here, but they don't look like they're wearing Canadian uniforms, so maybe they had seen Canadian summer uniforms or something. They didn't believe us, but when they saw the props on our arms, you could not convince them that we were not pilots. So the word went through that nightclub like wildfire, that there were a couple of British ferry pilots, women, and a, and a lot of the ferry pilots were women. The Americans used them and, and the British people used them too. So they announced it. Well, I never had so many drinks lined up in front of me in my life. Everybody sent drinks over to the table and wanted to know if we wanted to eat and was just great and the floor show was just fabulous you know and we had these great seats 
when we came back from New York, I thought it was like living in a dream. I, how did we crowd all that in there? You know, we went to Central Park and it was, but they were very short of clothing there. One of the girls in the, um, in Halifax, well, Mary Kuby actually, she wanted me to buy her a nice nightie. She said, I am getting so sick of wearing flannelette pajamas and crummy old nighties, you know, that the only things that we could buy were really sleazy rayon things in the stores. She said, if I give you some money, will you buy me a decent nightgown And in New York? Well, you know, we looked everywhere and we couldn't find one. They didn't have any more in the way of clothing than we did. They were just as hard up for, like, you couldn't buy fancy stockings or was hardly anything in the way of clothes. You know, for civilians, everything was going to the war. So, anyway, um, one of the girls on my shift's name was Joyce Clark, and everybody loved Clarkie. And she was from St. John, New Brunswick, and she asked me once if I would like to go home with her on a weekend. And I'd never been to St. John, New Brunswick, and I thought it was a great idea. But, you know, it's money. How do you get money? And she said, oh, forget the money. We'll hitchhike. And I said, well, how long does it take? And she said, well, it depends on how lucky we are with our thumbs. But she said, we'll get off work at 8 o'clock in the morning and we'll just go back to barracks on the truck, have our breakfast, grab our bag, and we'll go out through the hole in the fence that goes onto the highway. Everybody knew about this hole in the fence that went out to the highway. And I think all the service policemen knew too, and they never stopped anybody because it got bigger all the time I was there. But anyway, we went out onto the highway, and the first thing almost that came along was a Jeep with two soldiers in it and an empty back seat, and they stopped. And they gave us a ride as far as Moncton. And we stopped in Moncton for the afternoon, and then we got out on the highway and hitchhiked. And a car came along with a man in it. And, you know, we didn't see very many cars on the road, but this man stopped, and he asked us where we were going. We said, St. John. He said, well, I can't take you all the way to St. John, but I can take you as far as... I can't remember where he was going. But anyway, we got in the car with this guy, which was fine. There's two of us. And Clark, he was pretty strong. And we're driving along the highway, and all, and all of a sudden... He says, I hope you don't mind, and he makes a left turn down this kind of a country lane. He says, I have a summer home on a lake down here, and every time I go by, I check it out. So I hope you don't mind if I check it out while we're going by. And you know, I was so dumb I wasn't really scared. When I think of it now, I probably would have opened the door and jumped out. But we got there. And he had the key, and he opened the door, and he went in and he said, come on in and see what it's like. And we went in. We actually went in. And it was very nice, had braided rugs on the floor, was on the lake, had an upstairs to it. And uh, he said, well, everything seems to be fine here. And we scuttled out. By then we were getting a little twitchy. He locked it up again, we got back in the car, back on the highway. And I think now, you know, how, what an awful chance to take. So anyway, he said, I have to, my town is the next town. 
you know, after we'd driven about a, another half hour, he said, I'd like you to meet my wife, and I'm sure she'd like to feed you. So we got out, and he went in, we went into his house. He had two little children. His wife was really great. She fed us, and they told us any time we felt like coming up to spend a weekend with them, here was their name and address, drop them a note, and we were more than welcome. We never did go, but I think to myself, you know how awful that could have turned out? Anyway, we did get another lift, and we went to Clarkey's place, St. John, and spent the weekend there, and her, it was nothing fancy. Her mother lived alone, and she had no brothers or sisters. I don't know where her father was, and uh, her mom lived above a store. I do remember that the floors were waxed so bright that you could see her face in them, and uh, she showed me around St. John. She had a reputation of being a little bit wild, but not with me. The last thing I ever heard of Clarkie was that she was a, a Unitarian minister.